in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Grant us peace, O Lord, in our days, for there is no other who will fight for us, save but you, our God. On this episode of the Memento Traditionis podcast, we will look at the virtue of obedience. This is a virtue that is extremely important and one that is often derided today. We live in a culture that is extremely individualistic and puts freedom above almost all things. In fact, freedom might be considered the highest virtue of the modern man. The freedom to express oneself how one desires, the freedom to even define what one's reality is. Although in most cases, this freedom is really slavery to sin. And so we must understand properly what is obedience. Who are we to obey? And in what way are we to obey them? And after we look into this, we will look into when exceptions can be made. The great challenge with this virtue is that many people today reject it as something that's oppressive. And on the other hand, you see people use it as a weapon of tyranny to abuse and control people in illegitimate and unjust ways. And so we must truly understand what obedience is in order to be obedient and to determine when obedience is required. So let us start by looking at the Catholic Encyclopedia definition of obedience. Here's what it has to say. Obedience is the complying with a command or precept. It is here regarded not as a transitory and isolated act, but rather as a virtue or principle of righteous conduct. It is then said to be the moral habit by which one carries out the order of his superior with the precise intent of fulfilling the injunction. St. Thomas Aquinas considers the obligation of obedience as an obvious consequence of the subordination established in the world by the natural and positive law. The idea that subjection of any sort of one man to another is incompatible with human freedom, a notion that had vogue in the religious and political teachings of the post-Reformation period, he refutes by showing that it is at variance with the constituted nature of things and the positive prescriptions of the Almighty God. The element that differentiates it adequately from other good habits is found in the last part of the definition already given. Stress is put upon the fact that one not only does what is actually enjoined, but does it with a mind to formally fall in with the will of the commander. It is, in other words, the homage rendered to authority which ranks it as a distinct virtue. Among the virtues, obedience holds an exalted place, but not the highest. The distinction belongs to the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, which unite us immediately with Almighty God. So we can see here that obedience is a virtue in which we comply with the command or precept, and not just following the letter of the law, but also the spirit of it, in that not only should we do it, but that we should want to do it. This is the virtue of obedience. So we can see that if we want to live with the virtue of obedience, we must follow those who are in authority, and not just follow them, but want to follow them. So the question might become, what exactly is authority? Well, looking at the Baltimore Catechism, this is Baltimore Catechism number four, question 123, 
We see authority is the power which one person has over another so as to be able to exact obedience. A teacher has authority over his scholars because they must obey him. But the teacher need not obey the scholars because they have no authority over him. God alone has authority of himself and from himself. All others who have authority receive it from God, either directly or through someone else. The Pope has authority from God himself, and the priests get theirs through the bishops. Therefore, to resist or disobey lawful authority is to resist and disobey God himself. We can also see the same principle repeated by St. Paul in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So we can see here, in order to be a good person, a good Catholic, we must be subject to the authorities. And this example from Scripture is speaking of government authorities, but this applies to every authority, whether it be a mayor, a police officer, the governor, the president, or whether it be your priest, or the bishop, or the pope, or whether it be your father or your mother, or whoever it is, if they are in authority over you, you must respect them and obey them because God has put them in this position. Anyone in a lawful position of authority has that authority from God himself. And as St. Paul says, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So by doing this, you aren't just resisting them, you're resisting God himself. Now let's take a look at different levels of authority. But before we can do that, we need to consider what law is or precepts that these authorities might propose to us to follow as an act of obedience. In the Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas says, It belongs to the law to command and forbid, but it belongs to reason to command. Therefore, law is something pertaining to reason. So basically what he's saying here is that law is reasonable. And this comes back to a debate about the attributes of God, which may not seem particularly relevant, but actually is important to understand. So there's this debate, is something good because God wills it, or does God will it because it is good? And some people might argue that God, whatever God wills is good. And to be honest, this is certainly true. But for our understanding, we must recognize that God wills it because it is good. And this is fundamentally important because that means that everything that God wills is good. For example, if we were to say it the opposite way, 
that whatever God wills is good, someone might argue that God wills something that's actually bad. You know, for example, he might you might say that God wills people to be uh, transgender or something like that. Clearly, that that is not the case. But how do we know that's not the case? Because we know that's not a good thing. And so we can say, this is not good. God's nature determines what is good. And because that is part of God's nature, that is what God wills. Now, we know that God does not act like a human person in the sense that he decides something and then he acts. You know, he does all of these things instantaneously as, as far as we can understand it from a human perspective. He both defines what is good and wills it at the same time. But we must recognize that the principle of the good defines in a certain way what he wills, even though they both come from him. And so why is this important? It points out to us that laws are reasonable. They aren't just mere acts of will, but they're something that conform to the divine reason, that is, to the intelligence of God. And because God knows that it is good, he wills it for us. And therefore, every law that is legitimate is something that is for our good. And on another note, that means that every legitimate request for obedience is something that's for our good. It's in our best interest to be obedient to legitimate authorities, laws, and precepts. Now, from this understanding of law, St. Thomas Aquinas distinguishes between different levels of law. The highest level of law is what is called the eternal law. And as St. Augustine says, that law, which is the supreme reason, cannot be understood to be otherwise than unchangeable and eternal. And what he means by this is that supreme reason is God himself. And God is unchangeable and eternal. He is the eternal law. St. Thomas goes on to say, as stated above, a law is nothing else but a dictate of practical reason emanating from the ruler who governs a perfect community. Now it is evident, granted, that the world is ruled by divine providence, as was stated, that the whole community of the universe is governed by divine reason. Wherefore, the very idea of the government of things in God, the ruler of the universe, has the nature of a law. And since divine reason's conception of things is not subject to time, but is eternal, according to Proverbs 8.23, therefore it is that kind of law must be called eternal. So as we can see here, the eternal law is God himself, the divine reason. And we can understand from this that this is the source of all legitimate laws. As we saw earlier, in order to obey authority, we must recognize that all authority comes from God himself, and therefore all legitimate laws come from God himself. They come from this eternal law, who is God himself. And since this law is eternal, this divine reason that does not change, that is always good and true, it is something that we must always obey, as St. Thomas says elsewhere in the Summa Theologiae. He who obeys is moved by the command of the person he obeys, just as natural things are moved by their motive causes. Now just as God is the first mover of all things that are moved naturally, so too is he the first mover of all wills, as shown above. 
Therefore, just as all natural things are subject to the divine motion by a natural necessity, so too all wills by a kind of necessity of justice are bound to obey the divine command. Now this doesn't mean that everyone will obey the divine command, although ultimately the, in the end God will have the last say. But it does mean that we are all bound to obey God because he ordains all things. And if we do not obey God, we are ultimately working against he who is eternal and all-powerful. We cannot win, nor should we want to. That would be the epitome of folly. Now, after the eternal law, we have what is called the natural law. This is one step below the eternal law. And we can see, as St. Thomas says in the Summa Theologiae, and here he quotes Romans 2.14, When the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature those things that are of the law, although they have no written law, yet they have the natural law, whereby each one knows and is conscious of what is good and what is evil. St. Thomas Aquinas answers that, as stated above, law being a rule and measure can be in a person in two ways. In one way, as in him that rules and measures. In another way, as in that which is ruled and measured. Since a thing is ruled and measured insofar as it partakes of the rule or measure. Wherefore, since all things subject to divine providence are ruled and measured by the eternal law, as was stated above, it is evident that all things partake somewhat of the eternal law, insofar as, namely, from its being imprinted on them, they derive their respective inclinations to their proper acts and ends. Now among all others, the rational creature is subject to divine providence in the most excellent way, insofar as it partakes of a share of providence, by being provident both for itself and for others. Wherefore it has a share of the eternal reason, whereby it has a natural inclination to its proper act and end. And this participation of the eternal law in the rational creature is called the natural law. So we can see here that the eternal law, which is God himself, and we consider that God has created all things, and he has created man, and he has put into man and designed man for a purpose, and that purpose is imprinted in man's soul, and it directs man in certain ways to follow this natural law, the way God has designed things to work in the natural world, that is, in the entire universe. For example, we can see that there are male and female, and these two come together to propagate the human race. This is one of the most obvious examples of the natural law, and yet you see people today who are proposing that men can be with men or women can be with women, but in fact it is obvious to all that this cannot possibly produce new human beings and therefore is contrary to the natural law. And there are many other things that would fit under this as well. We can see that there are things such, for example, if I were to jump off a building, <laughs> the natural law would ordain that I would fall to the ground unless some miracle prevented me from doing so. So we can see that there is this law built into nature, into the way things are designed, that determines how things are supposed to be. And it is foolish of us to go against it, to say that we know the right way that is contrary to it, or that we can propose 
something within it that is not quite the way it's supposed to be. So you might say, in a way, to contradict, to not obey the natural law is disobedience to the natural world and ultimately disobedience to God, as we understand disobedience to any law is ultimately disobedience to God. Next, after the eternal law, which is God himself, and the natural law, which is how the natural world is designed to work, we have human law. St. Thomas Aquinas explains what this is in the Summa Theologiae. He says, As stated above, a law is a dictate of the practical reason. Now it is to be observed that the same procedure takes place in the practical and in the speculative reason. For each proceeds from principles to conclusions, as stated above. Accordingly, we conclude that just as in the speculative reason, from naturally known indemonstrable principles, we draw the conclusions of the various sciences, the knowledge of which is not imparted to us by nature, but acquired by the efforts of reason. So too it is from the precepts of the natural law, as from general and indemonstrable principles, that the human reason needs to proceed to the more particular determination of certain matters. These particular determinations devised by human reason are called human laws, provided the other essential conditions of law be observed. So basically what he's saying that is that humans will use their reason to look at the world and look at the natural law and from that determine what are some human laws that need to be put into place that are in accord with the natural law. And as we know, the natural law is defined and created by the eternal law, which is God himself, the divine reason. So the eternal law, God, creates the natural world, which is designed in a certain way and works according to natural laws. And man, using his reason, creates human laws that are in accord with this natural law. And so we might understand that if a human law is not in accord with natural law, it therefore cannot be in accord with eternal law and therefore is not legitimate. Now by human law, we're talking about, and I'm pretty sure you probably recognize this already, any laws that human governments put into force. So here in America, we have a Congress that proposes bills and they vote on them. And if those are approved, they go to the president who can either veto them or uh, ratify them. And if they're ratified, they become the law of the United States. And that would be an example of a human law. I suppose under here, you could also include things like laws or rules that families might put into place. Uh, for example, they might say, Everyone needs to do chores. We're going to split that up in a certain way, and we have to follow them. So we've looked at eternal law, natural law, and human law. And now the fourth one is divine law. St. Thomas points out in the Summa Theologiae, David prayed God to set his law before him, saying, Set before me for a law the way of thy justifications, O Lord. And I'm sure you can think of other examples of this divine law. Going on, St. Thomas says, Besides the natural and human law, it was necessary for the directing of human conduct to have a divine law, and this for four reasons. First, 
because it is by law that man is directed how to perform his proper acts in view of his last end. And indeed, if man were ordained to no other end than that which is proportionate to his natural faculty, there would be no need for man to have any further direction of the part of his reason besides the natural law and human law, which is derived from it. But since man is ordained to an end of eternal happiness, which is improportionate to man's natural faculty, therefore it was necessary that, besides the natural and the human law, man should be directed to his end by a law given by God. Secondly, because on account of the uncertainty of human judgment, especially on contingent and particular matters, different people form different judgments on human acts, whence also different and contrary laws result. In order, therefore, that man may know without any doubt what he ought to do and what he ought to avoid, it was necessary for man to be directed in his proper acts by a law given by God, for it is certain that such a law cannot err. Thirdly, because man can make laws in those matters of which he is competent to judge, but man is not competent to judge of interior movements that are hidden, but only of exterior acts which appear, and yet for the perfection of virtue it is necessary for man to conduct himself aright in both kinds of acts. Consequently, human law could not sufficiently curb and direct interior acts, and it was necessary for this purpose that a divine law should supervene. Fourthly, because, as St. Augustine says, human law cannot punish or forbid all evil deeds, since while aiming at doing away with all evils, it would do away with many good things, and would hinder the advance of the common good, which is necessary for human intercourse. In order, therefore, that no evil might remain unforbidden and unpunished, it was necessary for the divine law to supervene, whereby all sins are forbidden. And these four causes are touched upon in Psalm 118, verse 8, where it is said, The law of the Lord is unspotted, i.e., allowing no foulness of sin, converting souls, because it directs not only exterior, but also interior acts. The testimony of the Lord is faithful, because of the certainty of what is true and right, giving wisdom to little ones, by directing man to an end, supernatural and divine. So we can see here that this fourth law, divine law, comes from divine revelation. These are laws that God has given us, that the church has given us, through the scriptures and through tradition. So we can see that the eternal law is ultimate. It is God himself, the divine reason. He is a law unto himself, and he does not change, and we must obey him in all things. But how do we understand how to obey him? We can see how to obey him through the natural law, the way he's created the world and designed it to work and function. In a certain sense, we can understand him through human laws that have been developed through reason according to the natural law. And ultimately, we can understand how to follow and obey him according to divine law, which comes from divine revelation from the tradition, from the scriptures, from what the church teaches. And ultimately, if we understand that Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law, he is the law of the new covenant that we must follow. And through what he has done for us, God gives us the Holy Spirit so that we may conform ourselves and be obedient to all of his laws. 
So now that we've gone over the four kinds of law, we can understand the different ways that we are required to obey. We are ultimately required to obey the eternal law, which is God himself. We are required to obey the natural law, which is the way he has created the world and designed it to work and function, including how he has designed us to work and function. We must also obey human law, although it is important to recognize that human laws are determined according to human reason, and sometimes human reason can err in the development of these laws. On the other hand, we have divine law, which comes from divine revelation, which we are also bound to follow because we understand that these things come and are revealed by God himself, whether through tradition or the scriptures and the teachings of the church. So let's come back and look at the Baltimore Catechism and see what it has to say about obedience. Now, in the catechisms, obedience generally falls under the fourth commandment, which is to honor thy father and thy mother. And we see in the Baltimore Catechism, number 362, we are commanded by the fourth commandment to honor, love, and obey our parents in all that is not sin. In all that is not sin, because if our parents or superiors, being wicked, bid us to do things that we know to be certainly sinful, then we must not obey them under any circumstances. God will not excuse us for doing wrong because we were commanded. But if, on the contrary, we are forced in spite of our resistance to the sinful act, then not we, but they have to answer for the sin. If, however, you simply doubt about the sinfulness of the act, then you must obey because you must always suppose that your superiors know better than you the things that concern their duty. Even if they should be mistaken in the exercise of their authority, God will reward your obedience. Besides obeying them, you must also help and support your parents if they need your assistance. You must not scoff at or despise them for their wanting of learning or refinement, because they perhaps have made many sacrifices to give you the advantages of which they in their youth were deprived. Do we not sometimes find persons of pretended culture ignorantly slighting their plain-mannered parents, or showing that they are ashamed of them or unwilling to recognize them before others, ungratefully forgetting that whatever wealth or learning they themselves have came through the love and kindness of these same parents? Again, it is not sinful for the children, especially if such parents, to waste their time in school, knowing that they are being supported in idleness by the hard toil and many sacrifices of a poor father? Never then be guilty of an unkind or ungrateful act. No matter who they are or what their condition, never forget those who have helped you and been your temporal or spiritual benefactors. If you cannot return the kindness to the one who helped you, at least be as ready as he was to do good to another. Question 363 says, Are we bound to honor and obey others than our parents? We are bound to honor and obey our bishops, pastors, magistrates, teachers, and other lawful superiors. So we see here, although this commandment specifically references honor thy father and thy mother, this ultimately applies to everyone that's in a position of authority. Now we may consider that the very first people in the world who are in authority over us are our parents. They bring us into this world. And St. Thomas Aquinas talks about 
justice we have due to our parents. Because no matter who our parents are, whether they be wicked people or good people, they have given us the greatest gift in the world, the gift of life, a gift that we can never repay them for, something that we are always in their debt for. So even if they are horrible people, they are still people that have given us this wonderful gift, and for that we must honor them. Now as it says, we must honor, love, and obey our parents in all that is not sin. Now this means that anyone in a position of authority, whether it be a teacher, your boss, the police officer, uh, a bishop, a priest, uh, the president, governor, whoever it might be, we must honor and respect them and love them and obey them in everything that is not sin. So that we, if we know something is sinful, we actually must not obey them. In fact, it is not considered disobedience because we do not obey things that are not, not legitimate. For example, if someone tells you to have an abortion, you must not listen to them because that is sinful. And ultimately, all authority comes from God. And we know that God says that is wrong. And so anyone that says to do that is not giving us a legitimate command. And therefore, we must obey God rather than men. We can see this example in the Acts of the Apostles where they're preaching the gospel and the high priests bring them in and ask them what they're doing. And they beat them and charge them not to spread this gospel anymore. And the apostles respond, we must obey God rather than man. Now we can see from this example that the apostles in a certain way respected the high priests because they were the legitimate authorities for the Jewish people. And yet they told them to do something that was sinful to not preach the gospel. And they recognized that they cannot follow this command even though it comes from a legitimate authority. We see a similar example where Jesus is asked about paying the tax. And he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So we can see that even if an authority is corrupt, even if they do not know the right thing to do, we must respect them and love them. And by loving them, that means having charity. And we'll go into this in a future episode about what exactly charity is. But it means loving someone for God's sake. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to feel good about them. It doesn't mean that we have to be go out of our way to make them feel good. But it does mean having at least some courtesy and respect towards them and their office. Recognize them as legitimate authorities, even if they don't exercise their authority by giving illegitimate commands. Now we also saw from this article in the Baltimore Catechism that if a superior gives you a command which you are unsure whether or not it is sinful, then you are bound to obey it. So if you don't know, if you're not sure for certain that it's a sin, then you must give them the benefit of the doubt and obey them because God will reward you for this, for being obedient. Coming back to the Baltimore Catechism, question 365 says, what is forbidden by the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment forbids all disobedience, contempt, and stubbornness towards our parents or lawful superiors. 
contempt, showing by our words or actions that we disregard or despise those placed over us. A man who is summoned to appear in court and does not come is punished for contempt of court because he shows that he disregards the authority of the judge. A thing not very bad in itself may become very bad if done out of contempt. For example, there will be a great difference between eating a little more than the church allows on a fast day simply because you were hungry and eating it because you wanted to show that you despise the law of fasting and the authority of the church. The first would only be a venial sin, but the latter mortal. So for all your actions, an act which in itself might be a venial sin could easily become a mortal sin if you did it through contempt. Stubbornness, that is, unwillingness to give in even when you know you are wrong and should yield. Those who obey slowly and do what they are ordered in a sulky manner are also guilty of stubbornness. So if we remember that obedience is a virtue and not only following the command, but also wanting to follow it. If you do it stubbornly and sulky and don't do it promptly, then you're showing that you don't really want to follow it and you don't really have the virtue of obedience. So I don't know if I'd say that's a mortal sin, but it's certainly probably a venial sin to do that. So this is something that we need to keep in mind. And I would say even if someone gives you an illegitimate command, you should not show contempt for their position of authority. You should not respond in a stubborn way. You should do so with the utmost respect and with honor for that person, or at least the position that they hold. That doesn't mean you have to like the person. That doesn't mean you have to praise them. But I think what it does mean is that you don't go about bad-mouthing them. You don't go about showing contempt for them. You don't go about dishonoring and disrespecting them. Even if they are worthy of these things because perhaps they're very wicked people, that is not the proper way to act. However, I would say that if you come across someone that says, this person told me to do this, and they're in a position of authority, therefore I must obey them. You can certainly tell them, actually, what they're telling you to do is sinful, and you cannot obey that. You must not obey that. That is certainly something good and something that you should do. But at the same time, you can't do it in a way that shows contempt for that person or that position that they hold. Now this is something that we really need to consider because... We live in a very confusing time with priests, bishops, uh, even the Pope doing things that seem to be or are perhaps even evidently bad and wrong. And if that's the case, we cannot follow them. But at the same time, we cannot show contempt for them because they're in a position of authority. We might show contempt for the command itself but not the person that's giving it. For example, if someone tells you to have an abortion, you should show contempt for that command and say, that is wrong, I will not do that. That is despicable, that is evil. Whatever you have to say to prove the point that this is not a good thing. And yet you must do so out of charity 
and out of respect for the position that the person holds that is giving that command. The real challenge here is that you see many traditional people clearly recognizing, rightfully so, many problems with the church, many problems with different prelates giving certain commands, saying certain things that are either ambiguous or clearly wrong. And rightfully so, they point these things out, that they are wrong. And yet, this is often mixed with a type of contempt, a disrespect, a dishonor for that person. This is a dangerous position to be in. We absolutely should be clear and stand firm and not follow unjust and illegitimate commands. We must teach people what is the truth and tell people when something is wrong. And yet we must do so in a way that shows respect and honor, that doesn't degrade and put doubt into other people the legitimacy of that position. For example, if you were to go around saying how bad a certain priest or pope or bishop, whoever it is, is, and you kept saying that over and over and over again to different people, you might come across someone that perhaps starts to doubt the legitimacy of the position itself. They might start to doubt their faith. And so we must be very careful and precise in the way that we respond to these types of commands. If they are legitimate, or even if we are uncertain whether they are legitimate, we must follow them and follow them without grumbling. However, if we don't have any reasonable doubts and realize that it is wrong, then we absolutely must not follow it. Let's take a look at what the Catechism of the Council of Trent has to say on the manner of honoring parents. The honor which children are commanded to pay to their parents should be the spontaneous offering of sincere and dutiful love. This is nothing more than their due, since for love of us they shrink from no labor, no exertion, no danger. Their highest pleasure is to feel that they are loved by their children, the dearest objects of their affection. Joseph, when he enjoyed in Egypt the highest station and the most ample power after the king himself, received with honor his father who had come into Egypt. Solomon rose to meet his mother as she approached, and having paid her respect, placed her on a royal throne at his right hand. We also owe to our parents other duties of respect, such as to supplicate God in their behalf, and that they may lead prosperous and happy lives, beloved and esteemed by all who know them, and most pleasing in the sight of God and of the saints in heaven. We also honor them by submission to their wishes and inclinations. My son, says Solomon, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, that grace may be added to the he thy head and a chain of gold to thy neck. Of the same kind are the exhortations of St. Paul. Children, he says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is just. And also, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. This doctrine is confirmed by the example of the holiest men. Isaac, when bound for sacrifice by his father, meekly and uncomplainingly obeyed. And the Rechabites, not to depart from the counsel of their father, always abstained from wine. We also honor our parents by the imitation of their good example, for to seek and to resemble closely anyone in the highest is the highest mark of esteem towards him. We also honor them when we not only ask but follow their advice. 
Again, we honor our parents when we relieve their necessities, supplying them with necessary food and clothing, according to the words of Christ, who, when reproving the impiety of the Pharisees, said, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God because of your traditions? For God said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that shall curse father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, Whosoever shall say to his father or mother, The gift whatsoever proceedeth from me shall profit thee. And he shall not honor his father or his mother, and you have made void the commandment of God for your tradition. But if at all times it is our duty to honor our parents, this duty becomes still more imperative when they are visited by severe illness. We should then see to it that they do not neglect confession and the other sacraments which every Christian should receive at the approach of death. We should also see that pious and religious persons visit them frequently to strengthen their weaknesses, assist them by their counsel, and animate them to the hope of immortality that have risen above the concerns of this world, they may fix their thoughts entirely on God. Thus blessed with the sublime virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and forfeited by the helps of religion, they will not only look at death without fear, since it is necessary, but will even welcome it as it hastens their entrance into eternity. Finally, we honor our parents even after their death by attending their funerals, procuring for them suitable burial, having due suffrages and anniversary masses offered for them, and faithfully executing their last wills. Manner of Honoring Other Superiors We are bound to honor not only our natural parents, but also others who are called fathers, such as bishops and priests, kings, princes and magistrates, tutors, guardians and masters, teachers, aged persons, and the like, all of whom are entitled, some in in a greater, some in a less degree, to share our love, our obedience, and our assistance. The honor due to bishops and priests. Of bishops and other pastors, it is written, Let the priests that rule well be esteemed worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. What wondrous proofs of love for the apostle must the Galatians have shown, for he bears the splendid testimony of their benevolence. I bear you witness that if it could have be done, you would have plucked out your own eyes and would have given them to me. The priest is also entitled to receive whatever is necessary for his support, who, says the apostle, serveth as a soldier at his own charges. Give honor to the priests, it is written in Ecclesiasticus, and purify thyself with thy arms. Give them their portion, as it is commanded thee, of the first fruits and of purifications. The apostle also teaches that they are entitled to obedience. Obey your prelates and be subject to them, for they watch as being to render an account of your souls. Nay more, Christ the Lord commands obedience even to wicked pastors. Upon the chair of Moses have sitteth the scribes and Pharisees. All things, therefore, whatsoever they shall say to you, observe and do. But according to their works do you not, for they say and do not. The honor due to civil rulers. The same is to be said of civil rulers, governors, magistrates, and others to whose authority we are subject. The Apostle, in his epistle to the Romans, explains at length the honor, respect, and obedience that should be shown to them, and he also bids us to pray for them. St. Peter says, Be ye subject, therefore, to every human creature, for God's sake, whether it be to the king as excelling, or to governors as sent by him. For whatever honor we show them is given to God, 
since exalted human dignity deserves respect because it is an image of the divine power, and in it we revere the providence of God, who has entrusted to men the care of public affairs, and who uses them as instruments of his power. If we sometimes have wicked and unworthy officials, it is not their faults that we revere, but the authority for God which they possess. Indeed, while it may seem strange, we are not excused from highly honoring them even when they show themselves hostile and implacable towards us. Thus David rendered great services to Saul, even when the latter was his bitter foe. And to this he alludes when he says, With them that hated peace, I was peaceable. However, should their commands be wicked or unjust, they should not be obeyed, since in such a case they rule not according to their rightful authority, but according to injustice and perversity. Having explained the above matters, we should consider the reward promised to the observance of this commandment and its appropriateness. That reward is great indeed, for it consists principally in length of days. They who always preserve the grateful remembrance of a benefit deserved to be blessed with its prolonged enjoyment. Children, therefore, who honor their parents and gratefully acknowledge the blessing of life received from them are deservedly rewarded with the protracted enjoyment of that life to an advanced age. But if God promises rewards and blessings to grateful children, he also reserves the heaviest chastisements to punish those who are wanting in filial piety. Now, obviously, this relates primarily to obeying parents, and the clearest example is from the commandment that says, Honor thy father and thy mother. And yet I think we can also apply this to some extent to honoring and obeying anyone in any position of authority. So we should consider that and recognize how important it is to obey legitimate commands while also remembering that we must ultimately obey God himself above all things. We must also remember that we should obey the church above worldly rulers. And ultimately, even the church and the Pope himself are bound to obey the traditions that have been revealed by God. Now, before I go on to some other cases that we might consider to help clarify what obedience looks like, I want to point out a specific type of obedience that is often forgotten in today's world. Now, we recognize that the head of the church we are bound to obey him. And yet, in our understanding of marriage, there is a head of that body. We see in Ephesians 5 that the man is the head of the wife. And so just as all of us are bound to obey the head of the church, the wife is bound to obey her head, which is her husband. Unfortunately, this is something that is forgotten today, even among most Catholics. And yet, this is the constant teaching of the Church. However, it is very sad to say that there are many men who are not very good heads of their wives, whether they be abusive or neglectful or weak or whatever the reason might be. And yet, we must also remember that it is said that we must obey in all things but sin. Now, a man is bound to love his wife as Christ loves the church and to give his life for her. That is a great sacrifice. 
but a wife is bound to love her husband as her head and be submissive to him. And this is something that is not particularly appealing to many women today because of the influence of feminism. It's also not appealing to many men because that same reason and because they're not very manly. They're weak. They need to learn how to be more like men, which unfortunately there are not many examples for this. Now, I will probably do an episode in the future on marriage and on the traditional understanding of marriage. I certainly will because this is an important thing to understand. But I think just to point out now that any man or woman should consider this when considering whether or not they are going to be married. A woman has to look for a man that she's willing to follow, a man that is going to lead her, a man that she wants to follow and wants to do so enthusiastically. Because whether we recognize it or not, this is the woman's natural inclination to have a man that she looks up to and respects and wants to follow. And on the flip side, a man needs to look for a woman who would be a good follower, a good helper. Now, the challenge is that there are not many people today in this world that are very virtuous, and so we need to look for men and women that are virtuous if we are considering to be married. Now, that's all I'll say about that now, but that's just another example of the type of authority that needs to be obeyed and respected. So considering that, what do we do if we are put in a position where someone tells us to do something that is sinful? Well, we see clearly that we should not do that because we must obey God rather than men. But then the question becomes, what do we do if we don't know if it's sinful? Well, as we saw, we must follow it if we're not sure about that, if we have a reasonable doubt, not if we have some nagging uh, insecurity that we might be wrong, but if we actually have a reasonable reason for doubting that it's actually sinful. Now, there might be a question, well, are there cases that are somewhere in between this? And I believe we can say that there are, so let's take a look at that. For example, what if your bishop told you to go jump in a puddle of mud and roll around and get it all muddy? Or what if he told you to wear a particular piece of clothing? Would you have to obey him? Now, some people might say yes, because it's not necessarily sinful to jump in a puddle of mud or wear a specific piece of clothing. Say he told you to wear, you know, he wanted you to wear green this day. That's not particularly sinful to do that. So maybe you should obey him. However, this reveals a misunderstanding of the virtue of obedience. We are not called to be blindly obedient, but to be reasonably obedient. And what that means is that if we recognize that someone is a lawful authority, that they can legitimately tell you what to do on a specific matter, then you must obey them. But the question becomes, what is their legitimate authority? And the legitimate authority that they have takes into consideration the position that they hold. For example, your bishop could not tell you that the speed limit on a specific street is 10 miles an hour when in fact it says 25. He is not in a position of authority to make laws like that. 
Or on the other hand, if a police officer came up to you and said, you must fast for five hours before going to Mass, well, you don't have to follow that authority because he does not have authority to pronounce on such a thing. Let's consider another example. Perhaps the governor says, you cannot go to Mass because there is a pandemic going on. The governor has no authority to tell you that because it is the divine law that tells us that we must go to Mass. Now, on the other hand, a bishop can provide a dispensation and say that you do not have to go to Mass because of this pandemic. That is certainly his prerogative. However, we must also recognize that the divine law, if we look at the Ten Commandments, God says we must honor the Lord's day. So, generally speaking, that means going to Mass. But if the bishop dispenses us from going to Mass, then you don't have to go, but you still have to honor the Lord's day in some way. This does bring up a complicated situation, though, because the bishop technically does not have to follow the governor if the governor says you must shut down because of a pandemic. The bishop has all the authority to say, no, we're going to have Mass and we're going to go ahead anyways. Now, the governor may send in the police and say, we're going to arrest you for doing this. That would be completely unjust, and yet at the same time, the governor has the authority to arrest people. And so therefore, while you should still try to go to Mass, you might have to submit to being arrested for doing so, even though your arrest would be an injustice. So you'd be perfectly within your rights if you chose to do so, to try to get away and not be found and not be caught for doing this. Now this brings up another question. Can the government tell you to put a mask on your face to keep people safe? I believe the answer to this question is no. Now, in order to understand why that is, we need to look at a Catholic principle which is called subsidiarity. In the encyclical Quadragesimo Anno, Pope Pius XI said the following, Just as it is gravely wrong to take from individuals what they can accomplish by their own initiative and industry and give it to the community, so also it is an injustice and at the same time a grave evil and disturbance of right order to assign to a greater and higher association what lesser and subordinate organizations can do. For every social activity ought of its very nature to furnish help to the members of the body social and never destroy or absorb them. So from this understanding, we can recognize that authority must be placed at the level where it is competent to be exercised. So for example, it is the teaching of the church that is the prerogative of the parents of a child to teach that child and determine what the child is taught. Now they say that it is up to the parents to teach this child and pass on the Catholic faith to them. This is a divine command. And yet at the same time, they are given the responsibility and determination to, to decide how that should happen. So the state cannot come in and tell them how to teach their children because it is ultimately their responsibility and the state has no legitimate authority to tell them how their children should be taught. At the same time, the state cannot tell them that their children must be vaccinated because they are responsible for the health and well-being of their children. 
However, the state can say that they cannot attend public school without being vaccinated. That is certainly within the state's legitimate authority. And if the parents choose to send them to public school, then they will have to get them vaccinated. Otherwise, if they don't want to get them vaccinated, they will have to choose to do something else, such as homeschooling or sending them to a private school that doesn't require that. In the same manner, I would suggest that no one has the authority to tell me what to put on my own face. Now, a business can say that we will not let you in unless you put on a mask that is certainly within their rights to do so. And one might also argue that the state has the right to tell businesses to make people wear masks for the concern of public health. At the same time, you might consider a scenario where someone doesn't want to wear a mask and at the same time does not, uh, cannot find perhaps a grocery store anywhere that will not let them in. At that point, they might just have to decide to wear a mask or, um, you know, depending on the level of evil, I, I, I don't think a mask is necessarily particularly evil, although I personally choose not to wear one because I think that they don't have much efficacy and they're just forced on us for very political reasons. Anyways, that's besides the point. If it were something worse, like for example, they said you must have a vaccine to have a job, that would certainly be wrong. Or you must receive this microchip in order to be able to travel, that would be something that is evil and should not be followed. At the same time, we could say that the bishop or a priest does not have the right to tell me what to put on my face. Now, they could say that I'm not allowed to go to church if I don't do that. Um, that might Someone might make an argument that that is certainly legitimate. However, I do have a right to receive the sacraments. So there's kind of this prudential judgment that goes here. And that's one of the challenges with obedience is that we have to weigh the prudence of a thing. We must honor and respect and seek to obey the authorities while at the same time using our reason to determine whether they have this legitimate authority and whether the thing that is being asked of us is something that we are bound to obey. Now this is why becoming a priest religious has a higher level of obedience that's required. They take a vow of obedience. Priests take a vow of obedience to their bishop Religious take a vow of obedience to their superior. And if the superior, for example, says you must wear a mask in, in the monastery, then you are bound to obey that. I would say that you're more bound to obey that than if they said to some visitor that isn't, hasn't taken a vow of obedience, that visitor might choose not to wear one. And, you know, that brings up the question, you know, whether they should be kicked out or what the, they should do. Now, I realize that this is a very controversial subject, but I thought I would bring it up because I think it particularly points out the limits of obedience. So we must recognize that we are bound to obey legitimate authority when it is legitimately exercised. So we must recognize who is the authority, what authority do they have, and if they have this authority and are exercising it legitimately, then we must follow them. We are bound to follow them as if it was a command from God. On the other hand, if they do not have this authority, we might not follow it. If it's not sinful, then we might still choose to follow it, but that is our own prerogative. 
But if it is sinful, then obviously we should not follow it. So there's a lot more we could say here about obedience, and I'm sure this topic will come up again and again, but I wanted to put out this episode as a way to kind of start the conversation on obedience, and we can consider this when other topics that relate to obedience come up. But let us remember that when we obey a legitimate authority that's being exercised legitimately, we are obeying God. And if we disobey that, we are disobeying God. So any time we do not follow an authority, we must be certain that what they are asking us to do is sinful or that they do not have the authority to make such a demand. And if that's the case, then we can in good conscience do what we believe is right or do what we believe is prudent. But in all cases, we must do so with respect to that authority honoring, respecting, and loving them for God's sake. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen.